welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the, of the School of Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs and CFRC, so thank you very much. Now, if you mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher, so no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Alyssa Burrows, who is doing a Master of Science in Translational Medicine under the supervision of Dr. Anne Ellis. Welcome to Grad Chat, Alyssa. Thank you so much for having me, CJ. I love it. I love it. And actually, we were just joking before we, we got on the show this morning. And uh, apparently, Alyssa, you were a bit of a DJ yourself in high school or something. And what was your moniker? Yeah, my moniker was uh, Cupcake the DJ. So, <laughs> But my co-partner's was much better. It was uh, uh, Wolfman Joe. So... I think you got the short straw there, even though I, you said you did like the name Cupcake at the time. Yeah, at the time I was like, I love cupcakes. I love baking now. But um, yeah, it was a bit of a questionable choice. But I was also like 13. So <laughs> it's amazing what we do when we look back and go, what the heck were we thinking? I thought it was cool. I still think I'm cool. <laughs> cool and nerdy. Well, as you can tell, Alyssa has no problem in speaking on the uh, microphone here. She's very comfortable in front of the microphone. And so before we get on to your research, Alyssa, what is your background and why did you choose the Translational Medicine Program? Yeah, so I've always been in love with science, probably as far back as I can remember, like starting with like space and kindergarten to like understanding cells in like grade seven through grade 12. Um, so when I went to university, it was like, no, it was like, I'm definitely going to go into like sciences and definitely like more of the biological sciences. So I graduated from McMaster in 2021 with a honors bachelor of health sciences in biology and pharmacology with a specialization in immunology, microbiology and virology. So a mixture between pharmacology and immunology are like my loves. And so when I was looking into a grad program, I really wanted to look at something that was where you'd explore lots of things, so that's why the translational medicine program really fit. And I'd worked with Dr. Ellis in my past, and although she focuses more on allergic rhinitis, she was actually focusing on um, COVID-19 during the COVID-19 pandemic, right. which is still ongoing. And so I got to come on for a project with that. So that's what I'm focusing on, even though our lab group focuses on stuff that's a little bit different than what I'm doing. So, so how different is it? I would say it's every. I like to look at the world. It's like all, like our bodies, our, our immune system's like the largest system in my opinion, but obviously I'm biased. <laughs> so the immune system's everywhere. So although she, she, we all study the immune system, I'm kind of studying like how does our body respond to viruses, whereas they're kind of studying like how does our body respond to allergens. So, so right. it's how is our body responding to something that's foreign, but two very different foreign things. So. But this was a project that uh, Dr. Ellis already had going and uh, asked you if you wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, it was actually really unique because I was back in Kingston, because I'm from Kingston, doing um, my co-op with her and my undergraduate thesis. And that's when the whole pandemic, you know, May 2020, like going back all the way to then. Uh, so they had this big collaborative opportunity with a bunch of different principal investigators, a bunch of doctors and clinicians and scientists, big collaborative effort looking at COVID-19 in um, health sciences students. So I helped pretty much from the inception of the study all the way till now. And now I'm kind of the one, you know, pipetting all the blood samples and kind of trying to get it not, I guess, wrapped up per se, like kind of get our results into words and into the public so that we know what happened. 
Well, it's really nice, actually. I mean, the pandemic did a lot of things, and some of them has given researchers an opportunity to find out different things of, like you said, how do how do we individuals respond to a virus like that? Yeah. Um, and also giving these amazing projects for people to think on, because unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be the last pandemic we'll ever have. I, so I don't think to, so So either. we have to learn from it. And on top of it, too, I think, COVID-19, and I think the evidence points this way, is going to be around forever. So understanding how it works in our bodies is really important moving forward so that we can, you know, treat people and, you know, vaccinate folks and stuff like that and keep our protection up. Um, it's interesting you said you actually started this project in the beginning when you were still an undergrad. Yeah. Because your master's program is only two years, so which is not a lot of time for a researcher to really get stuck into a project. So... How do you think you would have found if you went straight into this having not done anything in the undergrad? Yeah, I think I would have felt um, a bit maybe overwhelmed. And because I started at kind of the beginning of the project, I understand like the whole story, but I also understand how much work went into like each and every single aspect. Like I helped with the recruiting of the participants, organizing study visits, having all those study visits. Because to have a project of like over 400 people and over like a year and a half of like data is a lot for a master's. And then mm. I started the master's probably like, a year, maybe it was like a year and a half after the project had started. So it was really great to come all the way through, like the start to the end of the project um, and then get to take it on as your master's. I think I have a lot of appreciation for what every single person on the team did because it's not just it's just not just me, it's not just my PI. Um, so it's, it's a group effort and also great appreciation for all the participants too because that was a big time commitment for them as well. And a scary time too. Yeah. To have to come into the hospital, get your blood taken, also get that nasal pharyngeal swab at the back of the nose yeah. i'm sure you've had a few now actually i've only done it once <laughs> only once okay yes. that's not that's not bad I I've, had, I've had a few and that was just before going to camp i thought i better check out make sure yeah. i'm all right actually no twice because yeah. i did it last week when i wasn't feeling very well yeah <laughs> just to make sure i didn't have covid and yeah. just a cold yes so let me talk about your research topic then because we've sort of been going around the COVID outs, in general <laughs> the outside of it so your research topic is identifying the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on people with and without allergic diseases. So give me a bit of a synopsis about that first before we get into the real questions. Yeah, so we know some folks respond differently based on underlying immune conditions. So if someone's immunocompromised, they might be lacking maybe a cell type or something to respond adequately to a virus. For people with allergic diseases, so this includes asthma, allergic rhinitis, and food allergy, as well as eczema, they're, they're fully immunocompetent unless they have some other condition. So they have a full functioning immune system, but their immune system's kind of overreactive. It responds to things that aren't actually a threat as like a threat. So we're wondering if that underlying immune system milieu per se is affecting the vaccine response at all so that's what we're kind of looking at is looking at people's immune systems and seeing if they responded any different um, I'm actually not suspecting that they are going to respond any different so it's interesting to have a hypothesis that you're anticipating is actually probably going to be wrong um, right yeah because yeah. a lot of people want have a hypothesis thinking that's going to be right yeah yeah so, um, my, my committee members like a, a wrong hypothesis is a really interesting story so um, <laughs> I'm glad he's positive and uh, yeah well, at least you'll cut you'll pass all the ethics and academic integrity like yeah. you're not trying to manipulate yeah. the data to fit your hypothesis. And the initial study was to look at um, COVID-19 infection in healthcare professional students. So that included folks at Queens who are in medicine and nursing and occupational health, like people who were in the hospitals and stuff doing clinical things during COVID-19 when we were really worried about it and all the other students were at home like in doing Zoom school. 
So we really worried about them getting COVID infections. And my project kind of has morphed a little bit more to look at the immune system a little bit more than that um, versus how much infections we were seeing in the community. So. so my first question then is, you didn't actually talk about it, but you, you're looking at this TH2 cytokines in the body. Yeah. So what is TH2 cytokines in the body and what do they or, or are meant to do for us? Yeah, so I'll talk about cytokines first. So cytokines are these proteins in our body that are a part of our immune system and they tell the immune system how to respond. They kind of give our immune system little signals. And there's a couple different groupings of them based on what cells they're made from and stuff like that. So the ones with allergic diseases are called uh, TH2 cytokines. So this includes um, some that are really popular called interleukin-5, interleukin-4. So we know that people with allergic diseases have usually an elevated level of these cytokines in their body, of the TH2 ones. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we're looking at. So I have from some survey data and as well as some other tests, like clinical data, like whether people are allergic or non-allergic. So we asked them, do you have asthma? Do you have Rice, etc. And from there, I'm going to look at, you know, is does their blood data kind of support that? Like, are we seeing that they compare to a person that we know doesn't have allergic diseases, that they're elevated? That's kind of a first test. And then from there, it's like, okay, if it is elevated, then did that affect their antibody response at all? And then, then we'll see from there. And we'll see from there. <laughs> yeah. It's good that you got the baseline because you need to sort of figure out, like you said, is elevated because of the disease. Now, it could be other things, of course. Of course, yeah. It's, it's hard with um, anything with like clinical research because the human body is so complex that there could be lots of different things going on. Um, someone could have like a cold or, I don't know, just be really stressed and something's happening in their body and it's hard to like capture that. That's why you need like lots of people, lots of data to see if you see any trends. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the hard part about humans. Humans are hard to work with. <laughs> So let me just make sure I've understood this. So if your TH2 levels are higher, you've got less chance of suppressing a virus like COVID. Less chance of your autoimmune system fighting it. I I don't necessarily think so yeah it's just that we're like looking at if it might affect how you respond to a virus i'm i'm kind of thinking based on some like vaccine data that i've seen that people respond fully fine to it there's actually a worry at the beginning of the pandemic especially for people with asthma that they weren't going to respond as well to the virus because it was a respiratory virus and there hasn't been at least in terms of the these things called the gina guidelines they've said that there hasn't been any higher risk of people having worse covid infections for having oh, okay. asthma unless you were on like some sort of medicine that was suppressing your immune system right um, but yeah so we're just we're just looking at it <laughs> so this leads to the production of antibodies with with the higher levels or the, the th2 yeah we're, we're interested to see if it affected the antibody levels at all um hopefully i i'm anticipating seeing that people with and without elevated levels will have the same amount of antibody production and we also know that antibody production like wanes over time Um, and there's a bunch of different types of antibodies so there's five different types Um, and I'm looking at three of them so there's one um, these are the three that respond to viruses so there's one called IgA so immunoglobulin A that kind of in the mucosa so that one's really good at attaching to viruses if they get in through your nose or your mouth or into your respiratory tract and like trying to you know, they crumple onto the virus and get the immune system to recognize and respond to it. There's IgM, which is also really good at that clumping action onto the virus. And that one's kind of our like short-term antibody. And then there's IgG, who's like the big fighter. He's in there for the long haul. <laughs> He's the one that you want to have like long-term. So we see like a spike in IgM first and then IgA and then IgG. So we're kind of tracking that with our participants as well after they've gotten vaccinated. So that's been cool to see. And, uh, yeah, and then after that was all kind of weighing down, then you either need another booster, but hopefully 
in the underlying part of the immune system because that's what's called our humoral immunity. So like what's happening in your blood system, in the, in the liquid part. And then there's your cellular immunity. So right. the cells are the ones who produce the antibodies. So we're hoping that your cells have built up a memory so that they can hold on to it the next time you see SARS-CoV-2, so the virus that causes COVID-19. You can be like, oh, I recognize him. I'm going to mount my antibodies back up and fight him off. Um, How is that possible, so yeah. though, when the COVID virus keeps changing? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, our immune system is very, very specific but it's how many changes happen in that spike protein. So sometimes the SARS-CoV-2 virus has been really good at being immunoevasive, so that our body is less able to recognize the spike protein. So yeah, we might have to continue to update our vaccines um, so that our body can relearn how to fight COVID-19. Um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting, I think, moving forward. I, I don't particularly have any suggestions other than I think we'll just have to keep updating vaccines. Well, we have to do that for the flu yes, right, each yeah. year. We're constantly updating each yeah. year of what the next flu is yep. so is it going to come something potentially like that you get a covid vaccine each year and you get a flu shot each year yeah potentially and there's some researchers looking into really interesting vaccine strategies uh, particularly with the the no nasal sprays mm -hmm. so with a nasal spray they have it for the flu the idea is that you'll actually mount uh like a mucosal response too so you get lots of that like iga antibody response right. so that can be really helpful and then also you might be familiar with the bivalent vaccine that just came out for covid19 mm -hmm. it's not a uncommon we have we have known avalent vaccines which means like nine strains of a virus in a vaccine but um, with this one, you have a spike protein that looks like the original one and a spike protein that looks like a more recently circulating one. And some researchers are looking at adding other proteins into their vaccines so that, you know, our body will be able to recognize more things within COVID. And depending on how fast that protein mutates within that virus, that could be advantageous to target a different protein. But we all want to make sure that we see the protein. So. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, and you've got to detect the virus in the first place, don't yeah. you? So anything yeah. we can do there. So why is it important to study COVID-19 vaccine responses in different populations? And I'm guessing it could help improve vaccination strategies. And, and when, when I talk about different populations, I'm talking about healthy populations versus unhealthy, those with allergies, those don't, some from uh, different environments, because yeah. environment surely plays a bit of a part of, of, of all of this as well. So why is it important and which ones are you actually looking at or is it just the ones with allergies or no allergies? I'm particularly just looking at folks with and without allergies, but I think it's important to look at as many different types of people as possible because arguably no one person, like there are people who are the perfect picture of health but it's also like we need to protect everybody and we need to protect mm -hmm. people regardless of what conditions that they might have I think it's a really ableist perspective to be like oh like I have particularly the rhetoric around like oh if, you know they had underlying conditions like they're at risk anyway it's like no we need to protect everyone so you know it might be advantageous to understand the vaccine response of someone with who's immunosuppressed or someone who has diabetes or someone who's pregnant uh, or someone who's like elderly or someone who's really, really young. And that's why I have to study in all types of ages and people because we're not we're all different from one another, but we all deserve to live safe and healthy lives. So And the most obvious is male versus females, because sometimes our bodies react differently. Yeah, exactly. I know there was a lot of talk and I think it's been debunked per se, but there's a lot of talk right after like the COVID nineteen vaccination of people who menstruate like having like worse like periods afterwards. And that's something that 
in our clinical trials, we don't usually ask or observe because Mm -hmm. for years and years and years, medicine's been very male-focused, and we're like, oh, females have this hormonal cycle, and we can't understand that. And actually, one of my peers is really, really diving into that. Her research is really cool. I should shoulder tap her to get on here. Um, I'll send her the podcast link. Yeah, so it's just like, yeah, we need to understand it, and everyone, like, regardless of their gender, sex, age, like... We need to understand everyone. So your data set, because you said you, you, if I understood, if I remember rightly, you said it came from students that are here already in like nursing and occupational yeah. therapy, physical therapy, medicine and things like that. Was that a, is that a broad enough database looking at, pop, if we talk about populations? Yeah, it it probably could be broader in terms of having more people of a different age group because like our mean age is like 24 and we actually have mostly female participants yeah so it definitely could be broader in terms of looking at it it's just kind of we were like like okay what can we look at from here that's like within our research groups like interest slash like expertise and we're like okay we'll look at allergy and, and accessible at the time and accessible at the time yeah a lot of things with covid research has been like rolling with the punches like just being resilient and like it's hard to be, like, you can definitely a year later be like, oh, we should have asked this question, we should have done that. Uh, and that's probably with any research question, but there's less. It was like rolling with the punches. We were just going with the flow as, as things changed and as, yeah, it, it, was pretty, it was pretty chaotic and hectic at times to manage, like, both the public health regulations and the hospital's regulations and the, what the med school wanted and all that jazz. So um, I don't know if this is a question that I can ask, but out of your database, did any of those get COVID at some stage? And did you look to see that those that got COVID, what their responses were initially in your data set? Yeah, so we actually, it was actually a lot smaller than we were anticipating. Very few participants actually got COVID. It was like less than 1%. Then we also, from the community, like the Kingston community, tried to recruit people who were recovered from COVID-19 and look at them. So we were using a clinically validated assay to look at their their blood samples, so we were looking specifically for antibodies towards this protein in COVID called the nucleocapsid, which you'd only have antibodies to if you were exposed. Unlike if you've been vaccinated, you'd have antibodies towards the spike protein. And yeah, we we found like varying efficacy with that platform, so we moved to another testing platform. But yeah, we had very little actually incidence of COVID infection. And as like someone who researches COVID, as much as you're like, this affects my personal life and all that jazz, part of me was like, we closed the study down before December 2021, which as you remember, for Queen's University, yes. we were kind of a, a bit of a super spreader yeah. with Omicron. So part of me was like, oh, I wish the study was still going so we'd have lots of infections, which is like maybe a little bit malicious. But I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, it's been hard to balance. You're like, I want people to get sick. But then you're also like, I don't want people to get sick because this day virus can be really damaging so um, yeah a yeah. bit tricky yeah it's a bit tricky the morals <laughs> and the ethics behind that you're like, yeah so, so how do, how are you testing it is this just from blood samples yeah just well for the main study we we're also using nasal pharyngeal swabs oh, that's right. sorry yeah mm-hmm. yeah so we were testing if people like actively had covid but because we were working inside the hospital people had to pass through screening questions so they had to like answer all these questions they had to say no to all of them. Then they came through. So we were also wondering, because at, t- at the time, lots of people going like, oh, like you can be asymptomatic for COVID, which is true. We actually didn't find anyone who was actively infectious while being what, right. who had no symptoms. So that was interesting. We might have found that later on if we continued on to like December 2021 and like went through the Omicron surge in Kingston. We might have found asymptomatic carriers um, during that time. But yeah, we didn't find anyone carrying COVID actively. Well, yeah. that was good. That was good. Particularly they're all working in the health system. Yeah, exactly. So that was part of the reason why we wanted to make sure that they're safe for class, they were safe for um, dealing with patients, because you could 
be an asymptomatic carrier working with a patient. Of course, you're wearing like your PPE and stuff like that, but you want to make sure that you don't pass it on to someone who might mm-hmm. not do okay having COVID. So, yeah. So how does COVID-19 psychologically impact people with allergies or was these are the asthma, allergic rhinitis? And why is it important to investigate psychological impacts of a pandemic on people with chronic disease? Yeah, so that was the topic of a review paper that I wrote on for my program. So my program is very um, good at making sure the stuff that we work on actually gets out into the world. So what I found was it was particular. So allergic diseases, asthma, food allergy, allergic rhinitis are all like chronic diseases. They're affecting you kind of all the time uh, to different levels. Um, So that can lead you off to already having kind of worse mental health outcomes. So for allergic rhinitis, it was kind of like there wasn't enough data on it at the time that I was investigating it. And then for food allergy, there's a lot of stress among parents. It's kind of interesting at the beginning of the pandemic. Remember when like it was hard to buy flour? Yes. So for a lot of people with food allergy, like they're, you know, caregivers or like themselves will like, you know, make their own foods from scratch. So that was kind of stressful, like not having access to things, especially when you're managing like 10 different allergies, having access to that food. So that was kind of stressful for them, but not having them in, like, say if you had a child, not having them in the school system where, you know, they're out of your hands and, like, you know, there's more risks there. They found that actually more psychologically, like, safe. And then for people with asthma, it seemed to be the most at risk was people with uncontrolled asthma had, like, worse psychological impacts as well as people who are female um, seemed to have the most, like, psychological impacts from COVID-19. It was just, like, the worry of, like, how this infection could hurt you and that you might not survive because of your like asthma because so, of your asthma yeah so people were kind of on edge with that even though the data has shown that most people with asthma are, like respond like a normal person so a normal, healthy person i don't know if you can answer this so what happens if say for instance when you're testing i don't know if this happened but often through summer there's people get oh, hay fever yeah. and, and things like that did you find any of your subjects that you're actually testing were in a situation right now where their allergies are playing up and if that actually made a difference yeah so my uh supervisor dr ellis is like the expert in allergic rhinitis and she was doing lots of different like talks to the media and stuff like that of like how the symptoms although very very similar to COVID-19 are a little bit different and like that people who've had allergic rhinitis like hay fever during ragweed season etc like they really understand their symptoms so they sh- hopefully will be able to differentiate but I think it was a little bit stressful and people also reported like their family members avoiding them you know because they're the runny nose and the sneezing and the like even like the post nasal drips the mucus dripping down into your throat causing that like itchy sore throat and the like really terrible sounding voice so yeah I think people did find it a bit stressful you're like I'm not sick with COVID but I could be which I feel like it's like whenever you have a little tickle in your throat especially like 2020 to 2021 you're like I don't think I'm sick but I might be (laughs) so but did it affect the possibility of getting COVID or is that too hard to know as far as we know it it hasn't there were some papers that were saying that some people had like an upregulation of the ACE two receptor which is the receptor that COVID-19 binds to to enter but I think that data was really poor Um, so I think it's hard to say if anyone if they were at higher risk for having COVID. I I wonder if and this is again a a question that's probably unfair to ask I wonder if there would have been a difference from the data set that you looked at compared to say a data set coming from India or something like that. Yeah actually I looked at a lot of data sets from from China initially because they had the you know the earlier introduction of COVID-19 so some of their researchers who are in allergic rhinitis are asking these questions so that's sometimes where I got the like early data on or even Israel and some other countries too like they had um 
was around a really good vaccine response but they had like they were looking at the medical school populations and stuff like that so i was looking at like how is this affecting med students how is this affecting residents like how is it affecting different people in healthcare and nursing and nursing school not necessarily nurses like the people in nursing school so that was really interesting to look at the perspective from other countries and then think about how might that be affecting the students here like is there cultural differences etc but also just prevalence of covid as it moves through the world up and down so so i take it you got enough like you said you've got a, a good data set to to write up yeah are you at the point of writing up or does it still need a little bit more because i know you said you've stopped the data gathering yeah so we stopped the actual study i guess right now not at the point of writing but almost <laughs> at the point of writing like so close i can like taste it which is i don't know i really liked writing in undergrad so i'm actually quite excited um but check back with me in six months but <laughs> come, to a, come yeah. to a writing camp yeah yeah <laughs> But basically, so the study like lasted from May 2020 to June 2021, and then we wrapped that up. And then we sent all the blood samples off, which there's so many of them, they're overwhelming, off to like another laboratory to do initial testing. And then oh, we're okay. Like, okay. And then I was like, oh, I really want to do these other tests on them. So then I, you know, asked really nicely for a bunch of really expensive assays. Please, <laughs> it's my Christmas present. <laughs> and then so I got all those. So I got the opportunity to look at the three different antibodies I was describing earlier, IgA, IgM, and IgG, to four different SARS-CoV-2 proteins. So I got the opportunity to look at that. And then I also really asked nicely, uh, again, for a cytokine kit. So I divided my people up into vaccinated and unvaccinated. And um, I like looked at their different cytokines, which I just wrapped up yesterday, although my machine didn't treat me very nicely. So I might have to do them again. some more troubleshooting yeah so we'll see hopefully not don't, too too much don't you hate that if you're in a lab and something goes a bit of equipment goes wrong for you like no word of a lie call it i was like oh this is my last assays maybe of my masters i'm like it's gonna go so smoothly like i've run like over 60 of these like it's gonna go great and then it did not go great so i was expecting to be in lab till like about 1 p.m and then it was like the spongebob narrator went 12 and a half hours later oh, and i'm still no. in lab i was like no so, I, I guess you have to have one of those moments. Yeah, yeah. I've had a few of those moments, definitely. Um, I don't think grad school without, is without strife. So, yeah, it's about resilience. It gives you something to write up as well. Yeah. I always yeah. think even negatives, you know, things that don't work, you can still write about that. And, and also what happened with the machine was, in honesty, probably slightly my fault and just understanding the maintenance and the care of the machine. So, yeah. <laughs> Need to treat our machines nicely so they treat us nicely back. <laughs> Used to always do that with a photocopier. Being nice to it on a Friday. Yeah, no no slapping the photocopier yeah. on a Friday. <laughs> you can guarantee otherwise it's going to break down when you need to do run off a whole lot yeah, of papers. Yeah. So you've, you've done a lot then with this and you're clearly excited about this work that you're doing, which in a macabre way. But <laughs> I, I, I love infectious diseases. Um, it's pretty much the only thing I talk about, it's just infectious diseases and... Is this something system? you want to continue with then? Because you've clearly got a knack for it, I mean, and, and passion for it. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in continuing on the route. So I really enjoyed pharmacology in undergrad, so I'm actually hoping to become a pharmacist after this. So I'm actually oh, taking okay. a first-year math course right now, which is really, really challenging because I didn't do very well in first-year math back when I was 18. <laughs> um, so I'm really trying really hard. But I really want to become a pharmacist, but then I'm thinking of specializing in either like drugs that target the immune system or antivirals or antibacterials, so kind of like along the lines of infectious disease and becoming like specialized in that. Or I'm also re- really interested in reproductive health care so like specializing in that maybe too but I don't know the world is wide open but you still want to be like a research clinician 
I think so, yeah. I think in the idea of, like, either being involved in research or also I'm really interested in being involved in, like, research around teaching. Like, how do we teach mm-hmm. people how to be better? How do we, like, mentor people better? So lots of interest. I need to sort it out. But hopefully I can just do everything and it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got your, your work cut out for you then. Clearly lots of things that you can yeah. work on. So before we finish, I just want to talk about some of your extracurriculars because you've clearly got a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah lots of energy. That's just what I'm gathering here from uh, Alyssa uh, in front of us here. <laughs> but you you get involved in a lot of different things like Science for Everyone, which is, as you said here, it's a science communication group. Is, is that a Queen's thing or...? Uh, yeah, so it's a non-for-profit and it's actually founded by a friend of mine who went to McMaster, who's absolutely incredible. Uh, he's grown the team over two years. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary the other day from like a couple people to right. almost 100, uh, which is amazing. So my role on the team is to do research. So, you know, when I'm not researching in the lab, <laughs> I'm researching at home to make science communication content. And it's been just the most wonderful opportunity. I tell people that it's like the the most favorite thing that I do. So and is it I, like a blog? Yeah, so there's I'm I'm running the blog, which hasn't quite get, got its start up yet. I'm really excited, hopefully, to launch my platypus blog as my first one, which I wrote for a friend. But Because platypuses are really cool. They are cool. Yeah, they're the, yeah, I guess you're from Australia. You've probably seen one in real life. <laughs> they're hard to find. Oh, I really want to see one. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mostly focus on infectious disease content for them, vaccine content, and, like, reproductive content. So that's kind of, like, my interest. I get to, like, work on them outside of school and also present them in a more friendly way to the public. And they also have a podcast, which I talk on quite a bit. Um, and they mostly focus on Instagram. So they have, like, 10 slides and, like, really short. So it's how do you distill these complex topics that sometimes you barely understand and you have to go off and try to understand them mm-hmm. into, like, 300 or less words or even like 200 words so uh, and tell a story while you're doing that too so that's been really which is quite a, t- um, a skill set to have yeah. so it's great practice yeah. for you I went to a science communication conference over the summer um, and it was it was the best time for graduate students and they made us describe our research in less than a minute and then they would throw a different topic at us. And I did improv in high school, so I found the opportunity quite exciting. And mine was a dating app profile, so I had to pitch myself and my research as a dating <laughs> app uh, to potential suitors, I guess. So uh, that was quite fun. So a potential three-minute thesis coming from you shortly. Hopefully. Three yes. minutes will be lots more time. Lots more time. So. <laughs> exactly. It's gone from one minute to 29 and, and, down and to planned, three. And planned, not on the spot. So uh, <laughs> got some laughs, though. And some of the other things you're in, the Food Allergy Canada Youth Advisory Panel. So, so what's that? Yeah, so Food Allergy Canada is also a non-for-profit, much older than Science for Everyone, and I've been involved with them since I was 15, so I was first diagnosed with a food allergy at 13, and then I just shadowed an allergist clinic and they usually get involved in this and through there we like advocate for better policies for people with food allergy they do a lot of fundraising and awareness raising about food allergy and they also have a youth advisory panel so we help out with those things and they also have a mentorship program so I've been a mentor for a couple years and stuff so you get to meet with young people with allergies I think from the age of like eight to like 14 and just like talk about like the different challenges that they face but then also you know helping them build that resilience and the confidence of like you can live with food allergy and it doesn't have to like you know consume your whole life like you can live a very successful life and and I think also the other thing there is it's okay to ask what's in a oh yeah something that you're buying yeah it's okay to ask it's okay to more so now than it used to be yeah even like since I've been diagnosed at 13 it's gotten a lot better but people who've had it even longer than I have are like oh yeah it's gotten 
like great over the last 25 years. And there's a lot more products that are more accessible for folks. Um, and the last one I want to ask you about, because you've got several here, but the last one, outdoor educator for the Limestone District School Board. Yeah. So you've gone from inside a lab to outside, outside ed. Yeah, so I honestly say, even though I'm, I guess on my seventh year of post-secondary education, I say everything I learned, I learned at summer camp, kind of stealing from the everything you learned, you learned in kindergarten. Right. Yeah, so I, I went to this summer camp going up called Gould Lake Outdoor Center, and we run programs for students um, that we go backcountry camping. So we go and we do skills and training at our location at Gould Lake, which is 45 minutes from Kingston, gorgeous place if you ever want to check it out. Mm-hmm. And... Um, then we go out on summer camps and yeah, you learn a lot about leadership, a lot about like environmental stewardship. Um, I'm just like endlessly grateful. And it's great that I get to come back as a staff now and give back to students. So I took some vacation from grad school and my vacation was going to work as an outdoor educator, which is arguably still really hard work, but I absolutely love working with uh, teenagers. They're so fun. A a change in environment is good for everyone anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're disconnected. Um, but the students, I always would tell them about my research and they're like, you're so smart. And I'm like, well, I've been working on this for seven years. So, um, yeah, but they're, they're delightful. Well, Alyssa, you clearly, like I said, you're very passionate about what you do and I wish you the best of luck in the write up stage because I know that is the hard part. It's fun collecting data, but then analyzing and writing it up is not the easiest part. Yeah. Look, it will be challenging for sure. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. And don't forget you can download this show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.